one way or another. Uh, it's an enormous career, and you can see we'll be somewhat all over the lot. Um, and next to me is Robert Stone. And next to me is yes, <laughs> Tobias Wolf. I don't know why I'd, I think I drew the first slot because um, at Penn we um, we don't do ladies first. I want you to know that, but it's alphabetical. Um, I'm just going to read a very short thing, and then basically we will just all talk together. Um, Twenty years ago, I drove the country, one of those necessary trips we take so this place, this place won't grow small and sketchy as the weather map. It was all still there, and in the unreal expanse, I came across three desks, one in Missouri, one in Virginia City, Nevada, one in Northern California, all purported to be the original one on which Mark Twain penned the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County. Twain would have loved it. He would have claimed all three as real and bona fide. He loved jokes, fraud, humbug. He loved a hoax. He loved the great new world of American entertainment and advertising, the audacity of it. On the other hand, he hated it all. He suspected that the man on the lecture platform, the bon vivant editor, literary gentleman, loving husband and paterfamilias of the mansion in Hartford, and all those first-class staterooms and villas, the fellow behind the pen name was himself a $3 bill, an elaborate trick, and finally, a mere projection that life, his life, was a dream. It was Sam Clemens' pen behind the pen name. And in a famous letter written to William Dean Howells just after he finished uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court um, in 1889, he said that it was, he had written it with a pen warmed up in hell. The dark side of Twain is old news. No one can read Huckleberry Finn past the first horrifying description of Pap by his son without getting on to that. This is not a boy's adventure. In fact, and I hope we get back to this, I read Huckleberry Finn as an avoidance of boy's adventure. You see, we have made a pact, and these boys, as far as I'm concerned tonight, they can get Tom and Huck, but I get Twain's gloom. Um, this leaves me somewhat in the position of the widow, Miss Watson, Aunt Polly, Aunt Sally, all those tedious women who claim to civilize Huck, or who might, given the chance, try and clean up Twain's act. Does it improve him to clothe him in the mantle of high seriousness, to drape him in the mourning of his constant despair? Does it take away our notions of picket fences, straw hats, Becky's picnic, the Edenic America, that Twain used, lost, reused, gave up on, and breathed life into until the very end? Does it undermine the myth of his own invention, comparable only to the magnificent self-production of Walt Whitman, that he was the true, original, verifiable American writer? I think not. 
In his work, Twain was drawn to the social intricacies, the intellectual rigors of the parlor, as much as he was drawn to the territory that Huck leaves. As you know, at the end of the book, Huck says he's going to head out for the territory. He's had enough society. The territory, the romance of what lay beyond, the little towns drawn up on the west side of the river, that which was still to come. The house in Hartford was literally a dream house, one of the few stops worth making on a pious literary pilgrimage. Splendid in all its high Victorian detail, it was not splendid enough, and he called in Lewis Comfort Tiffany to stencil the great reception hall, best parlor and stairway, stencil over the rich wood paneling in silver and gold. It is all, the billiard room, the conservatory, it's all extravagant. He wanted it all, to be vulgar and genteel and self-taught and learned, to be both popular and well-regarded, split right down the middle, tortured by the opposites within. He created over and over again two boys, the prince and the pauper, the exotic twins and the changelings in Puddinhead Wilson, doubles, doubles. He was fascinated by Barnum's Siamese twins who were a big hit at the time fascinated as though his own flesh was as freakishly extended to this other self. Cain and Abel are called the boys by their father in a late story that is downright black, a rewrite of the sacred text of Genesis. It is a strangely sexual story for Twain, perhaps the only story in which the boys, or Twain as the clever boy, does not run the show, in which a man and a woman face off lose the garden but find the other who is not that painful reverse image, the perverse half of oneself. But Twain was hardly ever free of the boys, the doubles. If he wrote the story of a bad little boy, he must write the story of a good little boy. In an extreme case, we meet old maid aunts, Hester and Hannah Gray, twins, aged 67. That story is called what is heaven? Was it heaven? Was it hell? As with so many of the powerful images that make up his work, that make his work grand and deep, the river, the town, the trip, he wanted to be shut of the boys, of this damnable duality. Leaving for Europe with his wife, famous, bankrupt, in poor health, he wrote, Tom and Huck will die. The Mysterious Stranger was his last work of fiction. It exists in three versions, like those desks, and was mispublished in a bolderized version after his death. On page two of the text, Esseldorf was a paradise for us boys. We were not overmuch pestered with schooling. Phoenix-like, they come again, two of them. It is a wild, free-ranging story full of magic, dare I say magic realism. We see the boys, those boys, usually so full of tricks, tricks of survival within or without society. Those, these boys do not sort out into Tom or Huck. They are no better than we, the readers, manipulated, enchanted into an Alice in Wonderland tale. Society is all topsy-turvy. History, which Twain was addicted to, is all rearranged. Not as in the Connecticut Yankee or Tom's misreadings of history or the Duke and the King's lies. Not a commentary on pretension, dead ideas, or undemocratic ways, but history as a totally different game. 
in fact, as only a game, only an adventure. Our expectations are defeated by the mysterious stranger as they are by Swift, by Defoe, by Bernard Shaw, by Kafka, by Calvino. The mysterious stranger remakes the systems of time and space. Satan, the boy, is the boy figure is Satan, is the superintendent of dreams. He pulls off, for instance, an eclipse, just letter perfect as it seemed to me. And he said himself, it beat Barnum and Bailey, hands down, and was, by as much as several shades, too good for the provinces. He turns time back through all of history to the vision of a soundless, empty world. At times, this stranger, who in one version is called 44, a number, appears as the supreme boy, Twain's last boy, a Promethean underworld figure happily omniscient. In essence, our world is over. The clever boy, Satan, is Huck let loose in the territory, Huck not responsible for any of the moral decisions that are as hard to navigate as the river itself. This last boy is a, not a great and accomplished liar like Huck. He is the ultimate freedom, he has the ultimate freedom from right and wrong, good and bad, truth and deception. But this territory holds no terror, though whole populations are wiped out in one episode. And we are all of us, all humankind, produced in duplicate. It is a chilly story because it is all adventure with no consequences, no heartbreak, no encounters. Here Twain finally united with all those painful, op finally united all those painful opposites, heaven, hell, God, Satan, reality, dream, in a world that is chilly but powerful. It is not exactly escapist literature. It is Twain's reality, that brilliant boy grown old in his time, the time of Edison, the time of Barnum, electric light and showmanship. Writing at the beginning of the 20th century, Mark Twain mistrusted it. Looking back, he mistrusted the rational, expansive, bright, scientific high style, the self-complementary end of the 19th century. His figuring out an end for the mysterious stranger is about as smart as some of Huck's conclusions, but it is sadly without irony, and I think in the long run, it is a failed book. It is pat, simplistic, his answers. The answers of an old man who would have accepted one desk, would have wanted only one desk to be the real one. And the answer is just that life is a dream. This is the conclusion of a literary man no longer easy with his book learning. Twain had read William James' Principle of Psychology in the 18th century German Lichtenberg on dreams. He was far from the fantasies and folk tales and frontier humor that fed his most wonderful book. It is a sorry ending to The Mysterious Stranger in which Satan, I mean, at this point you feel that Twain didn't know how the hell to get him off stage and end this if time travel was to go on forever. Satan says, it is true that which I have revealed to you there is no God, no universe, no human race, no earthly life, no heaven, no hell. It is all a dream, a grotesque and foolish dream. 
Nothing exists but you, and you are but a thought, a vagrant thought, a useless thought, a homeless thought, wandering forlorn among the empty eternities. He vanished and left me appalled, for I knew and realized that all he had said was true. How much more illuminating Jim's interpretation of dreams in Huck Finn. How much better Huck's lies, better as fiction, better as reality. How unmysterious, finally, this last attempt to come up with an answer, the answer of an old man who had lost his family, who was living really in exile um, with, his, with his sorrows. How pale this rewrite of the creation and of, let's say, creation theory as compared to Huck's I'm sorry, I've lost the page with Huck's um, thing, but here it is. I, I, I have a copy of it here, which will be fairly exact. Huck starts uh, perhaps one of the most beautiful passages in the book. Uh, he says, it is lovely to live on a raft. We had the sky up there all speckled with stars, and we used to lay on our backs and look up at them and discuss about whether they was made or only just happened. Jim, he allowed they was made, but I allowed they happened. I judged it would have taken too long to make so many. Jim said the moon could have laid them. Well, that looked kind of reasonable, so I didn't say nothing against it because I've seen a frog laid most as many, so of course it was could be done. We used to watch the stars that fell too and see them streak down Jim allowed they got spoiled and thrown out of the nest. So, I have, I just really wanted to talk about the end of the career and, and that, that sense of um, Twain's um, trying to bring together these dualities uh, which beset him all his life uh, the attempt finally uh, did not result in his best fiction. The great fiction, to my mind, the great writings of Twain are absolutely torn apart by his sense of duality, his sense of dream versus reality. And there are no grand closures, no answers. I think in in uh, in, in just that uh, that section from from Huckleberry Finn, uh, Maureen identified what it is that counts about Mark Twain. Uh, that he commanded a kind of American lyricism, invented a kind of of distinctly American lyricism, uh, and. After all, the life of any writer is is uh, is invariably unequal to 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 their best work. I mean, I always think of uh, of the line in, uh, in in Huckleberry Finn. A couple of days went by. I reckon you could say they swam by, they slid along. So 
fine and nice and lovely. And that's Twain, in a way, inventing an American vernacular style, which came to be as tremendously influ influential, that created a large part of, of 20th century American fiction. Going over the, the work of, of Twain and the life of Twain in the course of preparing to talk a little about him, I was reminded again, as I have been, uh, how, how, how little I understand the 19th century, how tremendously elusive the, the nature of the, of the 19th century seems, at least to me. It seems as though we ought to understand the 19th century, since we have lived out our entire century in its shadow, since we have in a, a, essentially been colonized and, and condemned to a pygmy existence in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the shadow of 19th century ideologies and causes. We never, ever quite got to have our own thing happen in this <laughs> century. Alas for us, we really never did get anything done. And the best thing to, we, can, we, we can say about ourselves is that at least we leave the 21st century with a clean slate. <laughs> because it, it seems all we did here was kind of live out their trips unsuccessfully. So at least we proved that everything they dreamed up in the 19th century didn't work, and if we have given no other legacy to mankind in the 20th century, we've, we've given that, we've proved everything they thought up failed. So, okay. Uh, nevertheless, it is, it is elusive, it seems to me, the, 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 the those motive forces with, with, which moved 19th century people. So I have to say that I, I really do find Mark Twain a rather mysterious figure, although I can identify him as a distinctly American one. In some ways, he is so American that I want to reject a lot of his work and life in the way that I want to reject the part of my work and life that I think I, that I think less less well of, I mean he is he, he is having been born he was born in 1835 he lived out so much of the 19th century I mean had a, had a small and comic comically ironic piece of the Civil War he joined a, a, a Confederate uh, uh, militia in Missouri and he served for two weeks and it rained for two weeks. So he deserted and went to Nevada, uh, where, his, uh, where his brother had been appointed secretary of the governor. I mean, this, this wonderful sense of an America up for grabs, where you could spend two weeks in the Confederate Army and then desert and then go off to Nevada and work for your brother who worked for the, the governor of a, of a Union territory. Uh, all this is, 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 is really quite quite wonderful and I think quite distinctly American. I always feel that uh, I want to compare the, 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 the work and, and, and career of, of, of Melville and Twain. I mean, there's an old distinction in, in America. Uh, one historian uh, made it between the, the, the so-called uh, the, the, the Yankees and the Butternuts the Yankees being the New Englanders and their descendants as they 
across the country settling towns that uh, uh, were centered on a common and with a village and farms outs outside the town, uh, keeping sheep more than uh, 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 more than beef cattle, sheep and, and dairy cattle, the, the butternuts, uh, people who made their clothes, tend to make their clothes out of skin and dye them with butternut dye. Uh, so Twain was the great novelist of the of the butternuts and and Melville of the uh, of the Yankees. But uh, in a way, a lot of the, these two artists had a great deal in common. I mean, they were both completely self-educated. They both came from families who had vague aspirations in terms of their own past. They dreamed of a of a of a of a, of a, of a, of a vanished aristocratic station, which was probably, as in the case of most, most American families, fictional. Neither of them had very much formal education. Uh, Mark Twain went west. Melville went to sea. Melville said that his, the, the whaling ship, the Akushnet that he shipped out on was, the, uh, was his Harvard and his Yale. Uh, the same could be said for, for Twain. Both of them read, both of them had this wonderful command of language. Uh, Twain, in a way, invented the American vernacular style, and, and, and Melville, in his way, failed to invent the, the American vernacular style. Both of them, though, seemed, in the course of, of pursuing their careers as writers to invent a moral universe of their own. In a way, Melville, it seems to me, was much more reckless. Mark Twain, as writer and as, as the lecturer and popular humorist that he became, and it was, I, I, this is the, this in a way was his great curse as a writer and his, also his glory, a, a writer of, 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 of tremendous gifts with a tremendously subversive sense, had, I think, in the end to live out a career as a kind of tame, Gadfly, if that's not mixing metaphors, he he provided the the edge of criticism that 19th century America required, and yet he never seemed somehow to overstep the mark. In the course of this, he worked up inevitably a tremendous bitterness, and it was in, reflected in his in his late stories. And yet. He, he was successful, I think, finally, because he had a canny sense of how far to go. Uh, this is a sense that, that Melville never had. I mean, Melville allowed himself, I, I, I think I, I work up my own, my own sympathy for Melville because he allowed himself, himself to, to disappear into metaphysics and uh, perhaps was a, was a less sound writer. I mean, his work is certainly much... Uh, more differing in, in quality than uh, than Twain's. I mean, th th that is to say, it's 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 better. It's both better and worse. Uh, Twain 
somehow provided us with exactly the quality of, of that, that, that we required in an almost direct way, as though he were taking orders from us in some, in some curious fashion. Uh, that his, his career began in, the, in, in, in that time of relative innocence. Uh, he, he, he thought of his own work when he wrote about America before the Civil War as, as, as hymns. He referred to both Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn as hymns. I mean, it's a strange word to use about your own book, but he, 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 he did use it. And when he died at the beginning of the 20th century, he had in his lifetime overlapped with the, the rise of uh, uh, the United States from a, from, from a pastoral republic to a nascent imperial state. Uh, in some ways, the loss of his innocence was the loss of American innocence. Uh, yet he seemed to believe in that. He seemed to believe in the idea of, of his own innocence and, and American innocence. In the w if you compare the late work of Melville and, and, uh, and Twain, you come up with, with Melville's story, The Confidence Man, very curious story, ironically, set on a riverboat, and the mysterious stranger, Twain's, uh, Twain's uh, final statement of the, of the perversity of existence is both of these, both of these writers, in a way, discovering stating as their as their as their 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 farewell documents a, a, a certain disillusionment with things and with mankind which in a way is is rather strange and rather distinctly american because so m so many and so much of the work of the rest of the world would never have concerned itself with such illusions the very illusions themselves and the process of disillusionment seems to be distinctly American. <coughs> Maureen talked about seeing these three desks, uh, and we were talking just before here about Maureen's visit to uh, Twain's house in Hartford. And I was, I was telling uh, about my visit to Twain's house in Hannibal uh, about nine or ten years ago. I was moving east with a truckload of uh, furniture, which since is all gone somewhere. You know, I didn't really need to move it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and an old Volvo, which is also gone. God, the stuff we haul around. And... Uh, and I, and I went way out of my way because I wanted to see, I wanted to see Hannibal, I wanted to see Twain's house. And as soon as I walked into this house, I wanted to get out of it. I understood exactly why he left. And I could also understand how the, how the memory of a person could reconstruct this romantically, this house. It had, it had all the gestures of a big house, of a grand house, but it's, these gestures just kept reminding you how small it was. It's this tiny little salt box, a uh, little uh, salt and pepper shaker of a house. Every room squeezes your shoulders as you walk in, and the rooms are small, and the ceilings are low. And, uh, and it manages in the smallest way to be very pretentious. And, and 
I hit the road as fast as I could and was promptly in the middle of a cornfield about 10 miles out of town, dri driven off the road by a wide load. And I spent the rest of the night in this cornfield, weeping, trying to reconnect my Volvo to my moving van. And, and it was a scene that, that uh, I, I sensed Twain around me during this uh, uh, ordeal. And, and indeed, as I was thinking about being here tonight and talking about Twain, uh, I felt the difficulty of, of talking with him because the minute you start talking about him, he's there. You sense that corrosive intelligence and your words suddenly become a little heavier on the tongue. Uh, he's a spectator there. He always is a spectator for me. Uh, you can't forget that this is the man who, who nailed Cooper to the wall for using the words counteracting for opposing, rejoined for remarked, unsophisticated for primitive, <laughs> treacherous for hostile, etc. And who uh, reported while he was living in Heidelberg that a team of local surgeons had successfully removed a 17-syllable word from a man's stomach. <laughs> you have to watch yourself when you're talking about Twain how quickly he comes back to us, that man. He's alive in the very rhythms of his work when you start reading him. He escapes like a genie from the bottle when he's there. I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about the question of his influence and maybe a little more about the problem of his influence. Uh, I'm going to begin with this old chestnut of Hemingway's that he wrote in uh, Green Hills of Africa. It's a passage about Huckleberry Finn. He says, it's the best book we've had. All American writing comes from that. There was nothing before. This is a pretty sweeping remark. On the order of Nabokov's comment that we all crawled out from underneath Gogol's overcoat. I could, anybody could, have a lot of fun punching holes in a, in a generalization like that. Uh, and it would certainly uh, conform with the present national sport of, of beating up on Hemingway on, at platforms. Uh, uh, about a year ago, I, I witnessed a, a very esteemed critic uh, do this. He, he, was, he gave a reading of Hemingway's The Cat in the Rain and then tore it to shreds. And every time he mentioned Hemingway, he, he, uh, he called him Papa in this sneering way. Papa this. and. Papa that, and I thought, what's, what's going on here? And I thought, oh, he's telling me what's going on. He's killing his dad on the platform. That's what he's doing. <laughs> anyway, this is a digression, but I, I thought that it was obligatory in any talk on Mark Twain to have a digression built into it because he prescribed that. That's, that's part of it. Anyway, it would be easy to, to find fault with this generalization, but... Uh, but it strikes me as, um, in a lot of ways, true. Uh, not so much, or not so particularly, um, in its location of a particularly American genius in Huckleberry Finn, but of, of Twain's work generally. Uh, there were and had been other writers who had this kind of distinctly American presence, but nobody made it felt the way Twain did. 
Partly, I think, this was uh, a question of embarrassment. Except for the colorists, you find, I think, in, in American writing of the time, uh, an awe of European culture, and especially English culture. And those who spoke for that culture were very adept at increasing uh, the weight of that embarrassment. Uh, so that in writers like James and Eliot, we still feel the persistence uh, of this Anglophile sentiment and embarrassment about American uh, culture and writing. Twain was uh, vehemently uh, unembarrassed about his Americanness. Uh, Bob talked about him being the first great American lyricist in prose. And he bequeathed that to, to us, along with all the problems he bequeathed to us. Uh, Sherwood Anderson would have been impossible without uh, Twain. And Hemingway would have been impossible without Sherwood Anderson. And Hemingway, with a nice appreciation for his own place and value, may very well have felt that all American writing came from Twain, that being the case. He refuses to be awed by Europe. He very specifically refuses to be awed by Europe. Uh, we can see that in his books on travel, in Innocence Abroad and later A Tramp Abroad, in the funny take he has on Europe, in his in his wonderful diatribe, say, against the, uh, uh, the German language, one of the funniest essays he wrote, I think. Uh, his pose is genial, sometimes even silly. And one of the things that it has the most fun with is the, is the uh, worshipful stance that Americans abroad assume toward the monuments of the European past. You see it declared almost most specifically, I think, in a passage I ran across in an essay of his called What Paul Bourget Thinks of Us. And I'm going to read this. It's, an, it's one of those articles on America that Europeans used to like to write in the 19th century. They don't do it so much anymore. Mr. Bourget, as teacher, would simply be France teaching America. It seemed to me that the outlook was dark, almost Egyptian, in fact. What would the new teacher representing France teach us? Railroading? No. France knows nothing valuable about railroading. Steamshipping? No. France has no superiorities over us in that matter. Steamboating? No. French steamboating is still a Fulton state, 1809. Postal service? No, France is a back number there. Telegraphy? No, we taught her, our, we taught her that ourselves. Journalism? No. Magazining? No, that is our own specialty. Government? No. Liberty, equality, fraternity, nobility, democracy, adultery? The system is too variegated for our climate. Religion? No, not variegated enough for our climate. 
Morals? No, we cannot rob the poor to enrich ourselves. Novel writing? No. Monsieur Berger and the others know only one plan, and when that is expurgated, there is nothing left of the book. Here the antagonist is France, but his insistence on our own excellences, especially the last, literature, heavily weighted here, is telling. And I think Twain's great eminence here and abroad, he was read everywhere then and printed in every country. And he, he used to love to tell the story of being stopped at a roadblock in Vienna and having, uh, having the sergeant uh, tell his minions at the roadblock, uh, for God's sake, let him through, can't you tell this is Herr Mark Twain? And he would tell that story everywhere. He loved his, his, his own renown. Uh, gave his eminence and the, and, the, and the nature of his eminence gave a tremendous license and room to maneuver for writers who otherwise, in trying to make use of their native resources, and their rhythms, their tongue, their region, their situation, would have been afraid of being typed as colorists and relegated to some kind of netherworld of literature. And we're still working. Uh, we're still working the vein that Twain opened in a lot of ways. I think that Bob said something about paying off the trips of the 19th century, and, and Twain is one of those, I think, for American writers. The music he made of the American language, its idioms and rhythms and pauses. He was big on pauses. He has a great essay on pauses, in fact. The way we leave things unsaid. His pride in region and place. So different from, say, think of Poe and his instinctive murk. Everything in Poe is murky and doesn't happen anywhere. In, in, in Twain, it is always to the specific place. His insistence on emotional honesty one of the great essays is one that uh, Bob mentioned earlier, uh, uh, a history of, uh, a late history of the campaign that failed about his experience with the Marion Rangers. It is, uh, it is one of the best books on combat and war that I have, or one of the best essays on combat and war that I have ever read. And it is so because it is so completely honest in every particular. And what a running, confused mess it is. And, his own wonderful judgment uh, uh, that, uh, that he could teach things about retreating to the man who invented retreating, you know, at the end of that experience. Never taking the received attitude or the received conventional response to anything, but always the actual one. Someone asked him once about his success as a travel writer, that is his, how good he was at it, and he said, I don't I don't remember his exact words, but he said, I, I actually write, it isn't that hard. I write down what I see instead of everyone, what everyone has told me I'm going to see. And it's, it's the same thing that Hemingway echoes later on in his dictum about write about the way you actually felt at the moment, not the way you think you ought to have felt at the moment. It's that central current of honesty. And that, and that very disdain for the conventional or received is what creates the problem, I think, uh, for
for, for us with Twain as his inheritors and his readers. And it, it, it is rooted in his disdain for convention. And his disdain for convention is rooted to some degree in rage because he became the very conventional person, the very burger that he despised, ultimately. In the land that he named scornfully, get rich quick, he became a hungry man for a quick fix of get rich quick. And in this deep contradiction in his own nature, he became hungry for simple, simple things and simple ideas. And this placed him, I think in some ways, led him to create an idea of the hero, which we still have, as outside the community, someone who defines their heroism even by opposition to the community and is often a child. In fact, such figures almost have to be children. Uh, it's, this is again a very American idea. The, the European idea of the hero is one who advances the community and balances and unites the community. Think of uh, uh, Saint Exupéry's uh, uh, night flight. The hero of that is a man who flies the mail to places. And he is not a hero, ultimately, you understand, because he flies the mail, but because he brings word of people to each other. He brings them together. It's not a fracturing. It's a, it's a coherent idea of the hero. And it goes back, I, I mean, it's everywhere. Jane Austen, the balance that you find at the end of a Jane Austen novel, the people do their duty and they bring people together at some cost to their individuality. And it is finally, perhaps in some way, a naive notion of heroism that in literature anyway he's bequeathed this. And I think it mirrors the idea of heroism and, the, and, the, and, and individuality that we find in the culture at large. Uh, and, it's a, and it's a problem for us. We don't have very many interesting grown-ups in American literature. I'll, I'll end with that. Uh, Twain also prescribed that a piece should, uh, uh, that a piece should be led wherever it pleases and end nowhere in particular. So I have followed his prescription to the end. Um, you know, one of the things I'd like to say about his war career is that you know the the guy was at sometimes he was such a terrific performer in public he loved that he was perhaps the first american writer emerson had given a lot of sermon lectures had done the lectures and all that he was absolutely on to how to work over an audience and he once in a while he misfired, and when he did, it was very dramatic. And one of the things he did with that material on his desertion from the army was get up. And this was not a miscalculation. This actually worked. Sometimes he miscalculated. This time he got up and he could play the audience. He spoke to war veterans. He spoke to distinguished war veterans, and he got up, and this was on some great public occasion of, uh, you know, national honor and so forth, and holiday. 
he got up and told the story of his desertion and made them all laugh themselves silly. Now, this is extraordinary <laughs> that he could pull that off. And other times he misfired. There are times when he got up and his irreverence, he miscalculated, but hardly ever, maybe half a dozen times in his whole life. The rest of the time, he had this magic for working the room, um, costuming himself. Uh, and the, I think one of the interesting things, perhaps, about his influence is that writer as performer came into being with Twain. Do you, do you know what I mean? Which well, we're still into. Perform. Well, uh, but, but Dickens, yeah. I mean, that, that seems Dickens, to be a 19th yeah. I mean, Dickens also had, um, had been here. Was a, was, a, was a performer. I think, that, I think the 19th century writer one, uh, certainly could advance his station, uh, uh, his, his influence and, and, uh, by, by performing. Uh, and of course, uh, the public reading, uh, the 19th century, had its had its own pleasures and the, and, and public readings and performance performances by by writers was one of its major pleasures. Uh, it's funny. I I I'm in, I'm still inclined to to uh, you know and w I, I I I don't know what 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 impels me to do it exactly. Uh, I I I do find uh, it's 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 a it's an it, Maybe it's it's the imperfection of, 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 of the, the writer's condition, the way in which Twain could work a room, as they say. It was always by finally making disagreeable things, or a, a, a apparently disagreeable things, or things that sounded as though they were about to be disagreeable, finally agreeable, which is, of course, the great room workers trick, but which has something about it that is less than satisfactory. He found it less than satisfactory himself, too, and I think one of the, one of the things that is interesting about him that's say, very different from Dickens is that Dickens believed in his own act. When he stood up and wept on these platforms, he was weeping from the heart. And uh, and for Twain, Twain was always a different person from SLC, uh, from, from Sam Clemens. He was a different person. And, and, his, and I think that's one of the interesting things is that, is that it was Twain who became famous. It was Twain who wrote the books, Twain who went on the platform. And to some extent, SLC was this observer of, of Twain and not always an approving observer. And you get at the end, He's very interesting. I don't know what you call it. You have to, I hate the word. You have to call them texts, though, in which SLC interrogates Mark Twain. And ...to what he was doing, but was caught in it in some way. It's funny, you know, his daughter, who died, who was brilliant, we, we, we understand she died at 24. Uh, one of the things that she's recorded as saying is how I hate that name, Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. 
And you, you have to wonder what she meant by it. Well, I think she meant, indeed, that other person who wasn't the very, the very devoted daddy. And he went down, there's a famous story, he went down to Bryn Mawr when she was a student, and uh, she kept saying to herself, oh, I hope he doesn't do the ghost story. God, I hope he doesn't do the ghost story. And she even said to him when he arrived on the train, <laughs> don't do the ghost story. And he got up and he did the ghost story. <laughs> and she left the auditorium. But it was a cruel thing to do. And he had that side to him of cruelty, of wanting the performance so much and to carry it off that the people, he adored that daughter. The people closest to him then didn't matter. That's when they became simply abstractions. That was, it was he was enormously perverse. Um, but I think you always have to go back with Twain to Huckleberry Finn. I mean, there are an awful lot of bad books on the list, those other adventures of Tom Sawyer, the boys' books that go on. I reread The Prince and the Pauper, and boy, I don't know, I found it tough going. It's awfully stiff, and you can see how it's all going to work out, and the, the changeling thing is boring as hell. I have never tried to read the one called St. Joan, which must be a bitch of a thing to get through. The two books that his family liked best were St. Joan and The Prince and the Pauper because they were all, you know, genteeled up. And one of the things we also have to think about in considering Twain and that vernacular and that in tremendous sense of the American voice is how pressured he was by his family, by editors, by his audience to be part of a genteel tradition. And he gave into it sometimes. It also has to be said that I think in, 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 even in, in Huckleberry Finn, as, as uh, uh, some time ago a number of writers uh, gave a public reading in defense of Twain when, when, uh, when Twain was threatened with... Uh, Censorship, for one reason or another. Well, the, re the reason at that time was his, his uh, 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 alleged racism. And those of us who had to read, who did not fall upon the most lyrical sections of Huckleberry Finn, had hard going, because a lot of, of, of dialect Huckleberry Finn is not so easy to read, I mean, even in the silence of your own head, let alone publicly. So that, uh, I mean, there is a, the, the, the technical levels of, 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 of execution in, in Twain are, uh, are not always, uh, I mean, it's, it's not always uh, the, the, the best American writing in the world. It's amazing how often it is, though. You know, even an essay. I, I in in uh, going back to to read him again, an essay in the uh, defense of uh, Shelley's wife. Uh, I mean, how can anybody write a good essay on this, really? And uh, it's brilliant. And and he he invests himself completely, finally, in defending this long dead woman's. Uh, Honor against the, against the foul moves of a biographer who's trying to whitewash Shelley. And 
completely reconstructs the lives and the lists of, and he, and he does this kind of fake, naive thing he does about, I'm just a simple boy from Hannibal. Tell me again why she's so bad. You know, let me go through this again. And, and oh, it's just, it's just priceless. It's wonderful. Yeah, when the voice was on, it was really on. He could call upon it on, on the strangest occasions. He could call upon it uh, in essays. He could call upon it within fables, within bad books. He could, you know, get it going. And other times, uh, he, when he backed away from this, the thing about The Mysterious Stranger is that except for once in a while, the prose is quite limp. And um, it's, it's a wonderful, late, strange story if you're interested in his whole career and how he, turns, how he finally turns things out. And that sad business of having to finally have an answer, who he never should have wanted an answer, and who none of us should want an answer who write. No writer should want such a pat answer. This is, but America, uh, somehow, uh, you know, th there seems to be some level on, on, on uh, maybe it was coined with the, the invention of the American Republic, that somehow uh, an answer, a solution, an end, uh, some kind of, some kind of resolution seems to be I I implicitly Demanded, uh, which which gives the, the the lives of so many American writers their uh, piquancy in, in retrospect. Yeah, There's and there's a lot of late work which has answers which you turn away from and you say, "Oh dear, <laughs> too bad that that was ever done." Um, should we ask for questions? Should we ask for questions? Yeah. What was the ghost story? The ghost story um, was a story about a woman who was exhumed from the grave by her husband. And she was dug up because the myth or the story that went around was that she had a golden arm. And so she was dug up for the worth of her. The skeleton was exhumed for the worth of her. Um, we didn't get on to it much tonight. Of course, he made a hell of a lot of money in his life. He lost it all, uh, putting his money into his great belief in technology, into something called the page typesetter. He lost every cent he ever had, and he was terribly in debt and had to go out on this big lecture tour to recoup the whole thing when he was uh, fairly well on in years. and But money in Twain, the whole business of money is just fascinating. It is always there. I mean, this guy made his own way from nothing, first of all. He is the success story, then the failure. But the dollars and cents are in practically every story. Sometimes they're a joke, but boy, they're very real, too. You all remember from Huckleberry Finn, the end of Tom Sawyer, they get, you know, they get the money, 6,000 bucks a piece those kids have, and, and uh, it's kept for them. And what, what Huck finally does, he can't, in order to go out to the, leave and go to the territory, he wants 
rid of the money. Money is always associated with um, corruption, almost always with corruption. Well, somebody there's, there's only one national literature in the world that doesn't concern itself with money, and that's Russian. <laughs> that's what the Russians say. They say all other all other national literatures are all about money, which is sort of true. I mean, French. And, but is it, yeah, surely Balzac and all that, yeah. Oh, the, the question is, why was there such a division between Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens? Um, well, who, who, who shall answer? Who do you want to answer? I don't know. I don't. Well, I think we've all been, in a sense, all been talking to that point, the duality, the split, and, and I think that um, uh, Toby said that uh, one man was embarrassed by the other. No, I think that's yeah. I think that's so. He he uh, <clears throat> he wrote out of embarrassment and anger at this. I mean, you talked to him about him about him as a tame gadfly, and he and he was. I mean, he would be trotted out on this stage to to, to do to do something that would come close to outraging everybody, but not quite do it. And and he'd pull it out at the last moment with some endearing line. And and uh, and at the same time, this was admit, this was the man who wrote a wrote things that he meant to disturb and to be subversive and uh, uh, to shake people up. And at, the, and at the same time, when he got through writing them, he would stick them in a box to be published when, when he was dead. I mean, he, he, he suffered terrible failures of nerve uh, and, and hated himself for it, as anyone would, as, as indeed any of us will at the end of our lives look back and see the divisions in ourselves that... Uh, we have reason to to wish weren't there. I mean, he, his are more dramatic. He's a larger figure than most of us, so these things seem larger. They're not more blameworthy, but more interesting. Um, it's asked how many people in the audience here have read any of the later works. Stormfield, uh, Captain Stormfield's, uh, what is it, Voyage or Trip to Heaven or any of the later works? Raise hands, please. Okay, are you getting your count, sir? <laughs> huh? Yeah. Yeah, except, you know, I'll always throw in except for Huckleberry Finn, which is not a cute boyish story. It's tough. 
<laughs> well, I don't think, I, 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 I think I, I may have expended my entire insight there. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, that may be all I know on, on, on the subject. I, uh, I mean, uh, I think I, w I, I would have to ask what specifically you you are calling on me to to, to say i mean I, I think i spoke in rather broad <laughs> terms so uh, what do you mean <laughs> this happens with me sometimes. Uh, what, what, what did you say? Did you say that we were passing on a blank slate or what? No. What? what? Where, was, no, where I, did the blank slate I said come that in? I, uh, the, blank slate, the blank slate to which I referred was that to which we were presenting the 21st century. Oh, I, I said that we had exhausted all the possibilities of the thought of the 19th. In fact, that we had spent the entire century doing that and nothing else. And that as a result, we were passing on a blank slate to the 21st <coughs> so they could have, God bless them, their own ideas, their own ideologies, and their own history, since we seem to have just about worked out everything that the, the 19th bequeathed us. That was my, my that was the, 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 the sense of my reference to the blank slate. I'm sorry, the What's your of, of, uh, of, of Twain's lyricism? Oh, one of the ideologies, we're talking about, I see, we're, uh, the 19th century. Oh, uh, do you mean, oh, you mean an example of one of the ideas of the 19th century that we have had to live at? Well, let us say, what, what have we done? Okay, uh, 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 this is really getting a little away from Twain, but let's say what we've done in the 19th century with the idea, uh, in the 20th century with, with um, well, let's say, the ideas of Darwin, what we have done with the ideas of Darwin in the 19th century. It's rather grisly speculation. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's an example, okay? Neutral, but not so neutral. But it's not has nothing to do with Mark Twain. In some, I found this little quote, which has something to do with the twentieth century, I think, um, and it, to, in my mind, overlapped with Mark Twain's um, innocent last plea for an answer to the miseries of his life. To what had been wonderful and yet a failure in his career to to all the problems his his desire for the simple um, simple way of putting it uh, and 
it's so interesting because the time travel, which we take to be a genre business, I mean, he wrote all this science. He was really, in a sense, one of the great inventors of science fiction. He wrote 3,000 Years as a Microbe and, and uh, all kinds of things about mental telepathy and such, uh, put out a lot of, of stories of that kind. And this I came across a couple of weeks ago in an article about Einstein. And Einstein's, uh, you probably may have read it too, in The New Yorker by Jeremy Bernstein. Um, and Einstein's... Um, writes to uh, the son of a man named ba Besso, who was a Zurich friend, an engineer with him. They worked in the patent office together. He writes to the family after the man dies in 1955, and he says, so in quitting this strange world, he has once again preceded me by a little. That doesn't mean anything. For those of us who believe in physics, this separation between past, present, and future is only an illusion, however tenacious. Um, it was a very nice consolation letter for Einstein to write to this family. On the other hand, uh, Twain's use of past, present, and future is purely literary and is not as informed and therefore not felt like Einstein's. Not really, no, but it was in, it's, it's really in my blood, I think. I don't think I, uh, I mean, it can't be an accident that the subject I chose to talk about tonight was, was the problem of his influence, you know. <laughs> uh, it, it's inescapable to me in a way. So I think you're probably not wrong to identify uh, things that we have in common without my necessarily having been conscious of them when I wrote the book. It's very, it's a very interesting thing to speculate on. I'm uh, because it leads us. I mean, if we go from from Twain to Sherwood Anderson and to Booth Tarkington, I mean, Fitzgerald coming out of Booth Tarkington, uh, Hemingway out of Sherwood Anderson. This 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 succession and the idea of, of I mean. Where that pessimism begins, that that I mean, if we if we go to the the state of the art of the short story now, if we're thinking of Raymond Carver, for example, and 
Well, I mean, what it, what that makes me think of is where does this, where does this, where does this uh, 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 pessimism quotes begin exactly? I mean, well, perhaps, I mean, well, Maupassant, Maupassant uh, was an influential writer of short stories, not read today very much, I think, but he was, he was, he was much read uh, 30 years ago, certainly read in, the, in those days. Uh, it, it's very hard to see where, where in the, 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 I mean, where do we go to the to the nearest? Where's the nearest? Wh where's the last optimistic story we've had on the road back there? That's it's it's you not know, it's it's not a um, I don't think it's a question. Um, it's I don't think it's a real question because because. Uh, to begin with, Sherwood Anderson was not an optimist. He was uh, he was uh, at least as pessimistic as as, uh, as any writer I've ever read. If you sure. if you read uh, The Egg, for example, uh, or The Death in the Woods, you know the only respect this woman ever gets is from the dogs who don't eat her when she's dead. Uh, it's a it's a terrible story about about uh, what happens to people in this life. Uh, it isn't the duty of a writer. I can't think of I can't think of very many writers who obey uh, what is a public appetite. I think for optimistic uh, work. Uh, the, the Maupassant, who you mentioned, certainly isn't. And uh, uh, you once in a while you find something in Tolstoy that always feels like him trying to cheer himself up a bit when he does it. But you know, at the end of the very ending of Master and Man, when this fellow is suddenly overcome with remorse and goes back and covers, you know, Nikita with his own body and and freezes to death in the process, that somehow magically works and is right. Uh, but uh, when writers try to tell the truth, they often come up kind of empty-handed on the optimism side of things. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you, you look around for happy endings, and, and, and uh, you don't see, you, you, you see the, the, the happy endings are more common in literature than in life, it seems to me. There are... But George leaves, don't forget, George leaves Winesburg, Ohio at the end of that book. Here's a, there's a wonderful description of him on that train at the end of that book. Yeah, well, but this is, does, I'm sorry. Uh, does that have to do with the fact that there, we may feel that um, the time of exploration, and we're all, this is one of the, you know, big cliches we all have to deal with, that the territory, as Huck says at the end, he's going to head out for the territory, that there are going to be endless problems, adventures, moral decisions to be made, that America was still out there undiscovered, and Nick Adams goes up to, there are descriptions of landscape, 
in those Up in Michigan stories, which are really uh, like uh, the dark side of the moon uh, when he looks in the morning, gets out of, uh, get out of the tent. And it's an other, the creation of an other world. Um, I think the idea of adventure in America um, had a kind of historical, for writers, not really, of course, not really, then you push further, but there was a kind of historical cutoff point. Um, and what, where do you go then for adventure? Yes, what about um, the adventure within the sewers of New York City that Pynchon um, gives us in V? What about the adventures we then make, that we, we then invent and make up within, and other worlds, alternate worlds that we make up? I, I feel that we might identify what what uh, a problem here immediately and that that, that I, I think the distinction between optimistic and pessimistic if, is a false one i mean all good fiction is essentially and finally for lack of a better word optimistic because all good writing all good literature poetry prose whatever is encouraging. It is a recognition of the human condition and a sharing of our condition. And consequently, it is encouraging. Insight is, of its nature, encouraging insofar as it allows us to go on. It enables us to feel fellowship with each other and to continue living. And that is Essentially, that that is that is optimistic. All good writing is good writing is always optimistic. Bad writing is always pessimistic. Right. The adventure in Beckett, after all, it's not American. The adventure in Beckett is getting your bike out of a ditch, right? <laughs> Being able to <laughs> go on a little ways. It's a it's an enormous adventure. And crawling, finally. Crawling, yeah. <laughs> I think that it was probably blurred. I don't think that I have a feeling. And th this is this is again that gets us into the mysteries of the 19th century. And as I've said, I don't really I don't understand the the, the culture of the 19th century very well. I think the line was blurred, more blurred than it is with us. And the, and and I'm not even sure I'm right about that. I'm I I, I have I have that feeling. I mean. He was in a position, after all, of being a very popular writer, so that he w he had the luxury of, of, of saying, well, because I am so popular, I must be good. <laughs> I mean, which, 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 which not all of us have in, in today. But I think the line was blurred. Uh, uh, certainly it was in his case, because he was both a, 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 a good writer and a popular one. I think, I, I think that, that he was aware that that there was a line, though, and he liked that line to be respected. And I think that's the, that's where the, uh, the spirit that fuels that 
wonderfully vitriolic essay on Fenimore Cooper really comes from is the quotations at the beginning of that essay, which are all from prominent critics of the time, about four of them from Brander Matthews and people like that, uh, Wilkie Collins uh, larding praise on, on you know, the Natty Bumpo series, Leatherstocking Pathfinder, uh, and, and that's what sets him off, and he keeps coming back to these kind of critical dicta all through the essay, because they've blurred the line there. They've said that this is good fiction, and that it's art, and he says that it isn't, and, and he wants to keep that straight in that essay, and so he, he is aware of those things, I think. Uh, and then there were times when he was under pressure for bucks, when he turned out stuff like crazy, and he wrote certain books like Roughing It that he really didn't want to write. He had to go back and, and recreate in his head uh, the experience in the West and come on being Western again, and he wasn't in the mood for it at all, but he had to do it. Um, and there were, there were lots of times in his life like that. And he was a publisher. Was a, it was a it was a large career in so many ways, um, and it is interesting. I think that you know, as Toby said, some of the stuff that he he was he was perhaps timid about he withheld. Uh, after all, uh, what about Billy Budd? There's there's a book that was posthumous, and uh, and one we consider absolutely. Uh, that is absolutely marvelous. Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Um, what? Go ahead. You know, he was absolutely afraid of, of being the rich burger. And then the other thing is he embraced it. When he first, on his first trips to England, he was an absolutely, he was an Anglophile. He, he suddenly decided, oh, hell, American democracy isn't going to work. Why, well, we should have, I mean, he really did for a while yeah. think we should restructure the whole thing. We should, you know, uh, the nobility ain't that bad. And so it's ab absurd how he got trapped into these things, enchanted for a bit. Yeah. This is a whole. This is a whole a vein of, of, of Mark Twain. In fact, his 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 uh, his uh, embrace of aristocracy, or as uh, of uh, uh, a country, his Anglophilia, as expressed in his admiration for England as a country that was run by the better people, by the better sort of people, 
and as a result was so mu free of the vulgarity and banality of America. And he really did go for that. He went through a phase, if it ever ended, in which he 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 admired uh, he admired Britain for its being run by people who were bred to a sense of uh, disinterested uh, uh, administrative instinct and uh, a revulsion for for America's uh, imperfect imperfect democracy. Certainly true. At the same time, he was the, ch the great champion and even the publisher of uh, General U.S. Grant, who presided over this yeah, right. national malaise that right. he hated so much. So, uh, you know. Yeah, and he, would, he, he seems to me, to go back to that boyishness, he seems to me to have constantly outgrown things as though they were last year's suit of clothes and he'd, he'd grown and his, his limbs were all sticking out of them and so forth. And he, he would outgrow these notions of his and then sometimes revert to a boyishness. Uh, the idea of him at the end of his life in that white suit, which didn't, you know, most of the photographs we know of him, many of them, ha ha are in that with the big mane of white hair and the white mustache and the white suit. And he had summer and winter, that white outfit. I mean, and that was an extraordinary thing for an old man to wear. He'd walk up and down Fifth Avenue in it with everyone. Here was the man who at the end was so lonely. The f most of the family was dead. Uh, one daughter was off in Europe. He had no one. He was just this famous man. And he swanks around in this incredible white suit in what was a pretty dirty city then as it is now. One wonders, huh? Even before, <laughs> yes, <laughs> before others discovered the white suit, uh, other popular writers. Uh, but he loved that sense of himself, of parading. I mean, it, it was an amazing thing, and it was show-offy. Uh, he was a tremendous show-off. Uh, and what, you know, what was he doing? These were some of them unpaved streets with mud and everything else. I mean, it must have been an extraordinary sight. He loved every minute of it. Um, loved it and hated it. And hated it. And hated it. And hated himself for it. I'm, you know, all that. Uh, well, his first description of why he became a riverboat pilot when he was, you know, in his 20s, which was rather late in those years for apprenticing as a riverboat pilot, was watching a boy of 13 steering this boat up the Mississippi with the in, in the face of, a, of, a, of, a, of darkness with the captain kind of fuming beside him but unable to say anything and all the passengers watching too and unable to control the direction this boy nonchalantly steering this thing he loved the idea of being in control and everybody else fuming for control around him and unable to have it you know yeah. but isn't it, isn't it possible to say and I don't know whether any more questions but I think we should probably end up fairly soon um isn't it possible to say that all this conflict, all this sense of who am I, uh, what, what is my life about, am I Clemens, am I Twain, am I a showman, am I a serious person with some good, solid ideas, not just highfalutin ideas, am, am I a real American product, that these conflicts within him, this terrible duality, led him to write when he was writing at his best about those very problems that were part of the American conscience and part of the American the, the problems of America in 
the 19th century, in the late 19th century, as, as it emerged, as it grew from its adolescence, which we're still in maybe, but as it was going through the growth pain. There's a reception afterwards. Afterwards is now. 